sugarcoating, no spin, taking the hard knocks. We're learning from failure so you can succeed. This is the Philosophy Audio and Video Casts with Gabe Zickerman. Welcome to the Philosophy Audio and Video Cast. I'm your host, Gabe Zickerman. In a kind of format switch due to uh, technical issues with Skype, we are um, we are coming to you not live, but on Zoom, which is a whole new experience. And uh, I'm very happy to uh, have everybody here. Remember to subscribe to the podcast using whichever um, podcasting um, subscription app you like to use, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever thing it is that you're doing, Google Play. Um, I have a very special guest, um, a woman who I absolutely love and adore, a game designer, a product expert, an educator, an author. There are so many things behind your name, but, but please say hello to Amy Jo Kim. Hello. It's so great to be here. Yay. Thanks, Amy Jo. I'm so glad that we, we got to make this work, um, and thank you for coming on. Okay, so... Mo of course, most of the people in the games industry and gamification business know who you are. But for those people who um, are not inside that world, um, can you tell them a little bit about Amy Jo Kim? Sure. So I help individuals and teams find product market fit and build compelling customer experiences in a nutshell. My background is in games and products. I've lived in both of those worlds for many years. Um, I'm well known for being on the original design team for several major hits, for The Sims, for Rock Band, for Covet Fashion, Ultima Online, and also Happify, which is a mental health app that's not a game, but very game-like. And my background is in uh, software engineering and neuroscience. I've been working in games for a couple of decades. And... That's pretty much it. I wrote a couple of books. I wrote a book called Community Building on the Web that was very well known at the birth of the web when dinosaurs roamed the internet. <laughs> and uh, I recently wrote a book called Game Thinking that is uh, a step-by-step -step process for accelerating product market fit and building a great product. So I've taken a lot of what I've learned about the overlap between what works in games and in products and put them into this step-by-step -step process. And it's been fantastic. Most of what I do these days is work with uh, teams and also with individuals in my master class to help them implement this process and get massive results for their business. Well, you know, it's, it's funny too, because I've, of course, we, we've known each other for at least 10 years. And I feel like in the last, you know, in the last certainly five or six as, as you've been, um, you know, you're a very like agile oriented person. I've watched you like, you know, do iterations of this product design uh, workshop and these game thinking workshops and, you know, doing your writing and doing your speaking and doing your teaching and training. So it's been very interesting to see kind of that evolution. And I guess one of the, you know, one of the big things that comes up a lot, I'm sure in your work, but I'm sort of curious in, in your work with startups and product teams is how product teams in particular deal with the issue of failure. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and I wrote, I wrote about, you know, what I think on a lot of people's minds at the moment, the, the problem at Boeing, 
with the 737 Max. And of course, that's a hardware product and not a software, not only a software product, but it is a software fault, right, in the product that's causing this problem. And their, their sort of inability to kind of just like stop and say, hey, this isn't working. Uh, we need a new approach. We need to rethink this. What, what's been your experience in working with product teams and, and failure? That's such a great question and such a great topic. I'm so glad you're doing this, Gabe. So in a nutshell, what I've seen is that the very best product teams, the ones that I look back on and think, wow, I'd love to work with them again. They were, you know, I learned so much. The very best product teams really lean into failure. And they, it's what they especially do is is in when they're bringing in a product to life when they're not when it's shipped and they're growing it but before that when they're first bringing it to life um the very best product teams uh work hard to figure out what's wrong with their idea as well as what's right with it that's how i put it and that's what i've incorporated into my own methodology it's really hard to do it is um messy and demoralizing to find out what's wrong with your idea. And a lot of people don't have the techniques to do that. And so part of what we do in our game thinking programs, and part of why I wrote that book, is to hand people techniques. I have techniques for figuring out what's wrong with your idea. Um, so I think it's very important. What I also see is there's a lot of people who don't tolerate failure well. And I've worked with um, some very famous entrepreneurs who had successes under their belt and were now doing new products. And their success had been something that just took off right. and they weren't quite sure why. And that can be incredibly hampering to you as an entrepreneur because if you are not able to really dig into, is this gonna work? Is, it, is this product really delivering the value for the people we're intending it to? If you can't really dig into that and, ha and get that sinking feeling of, oh no, this isn't working. I can't pretend it's, it is. It's very hard to iterate your way to success without that. And that's really what failure is about, is iterating your way to success in some yeah. or another. And certainly it's about learning. So, well, yeah. yeah. I was, I was going to ask you this. Uh, you know, uh, another, which I think is very, that's a very clear insight about it. You know, one of my observations in working with startups has been that they often, especially founders, they're somehow trained to believe that they're, they are the one with the true vision and people, especially customers, don't see their true vision, uh, you know, at the beginning. And so they have to, <laughs> I see you holding your head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, and so they have to kind of persevere through that in order to get on the other side, which I think is, I think is a false narrative, personally, about how great products are, are built and how great teams are built. Um, so, I can't think of a one hit I've worked on that went that way. Right. So I think there's the, there's the evidence right there, right? But so how do, you, how do you get entrepreneurs, how do you get entrepreneurial people in the teams that you work with to really like shine that light on the on themselves and and be open to the idea that they they might be wrong. Great question. I do it with data. It's really okay. simple. I don't do it with discussions. I do it 
by gathering data. And that really goes back to my science background. You know, I have a PhD in behavioral neuroscience and just years of grad school learning how to implement the scientific method. And we're not talking about putting something in a, you know, in a journal article with peer reviews here. Right. But in a nutshell, what I, you're right. A lot of founders hold tightly to their idea. And in fact, to raise money, you have to. You have to sound like you know what you're doing and you've got the answers. And right. I, that's like putting on your salesman hat, right? And then, so what I help people do, which I think is very hard for them, is switch over into your scientist hat. Sometimes I literally tell them, imagine you're putting on a white lab coat. Now you're a scientist. You're not a salesman. You need to find the truth. And then the way we gather data is we don't so much focus on, well, what do other members of the team think? And let's all discuss this and have a brainstorming session. Although I do do that, actually. I did something exactly like that for Google last Friday. Mm -hmm. So I love to enable team brainstorming sessions. That's great. But the way you resolve these kinds of issues and really make a difference for the founder is focus on who is, who is this for? And not just who is it for, but who's the leading edge early adopter slice of your audience that this is for. So I work with teams. We define who we think that early adopter slice is. And there's always an early adopter slice, no matter what. If you've got a product that's out there already, you can find yourself an early adopter high need slice. But you find this cohort within your audience or you find a cohort of people that are who you want to reach, right? Who you think your product's for. Mm -hmm. And so I have this methodology for finding them because that can be hard. And I won't go into it in detail. You can read all about it in my game thinking book. You can learn step by step if you take our masterclass. So we find that cohort of your early adopters and then test the idea with them. And I have lots of methods for testing it. Uh, I'm a big fan of storyboards and sketches that take someone through what would it be like to use this product. So a lot of founders think they can't test a product until they've built it and nothing could be further from the truth. You can test all kinds of things about your product concept, about the feature set that you're thinking of offering, about what you think people are going to do with it. You can test all right. of that by showing people storyboards with little mock-ups on them. And in fact, you'll get better data because people will be much more honest with you when something doesn't look finished. So that is that is you know, very, very interesting. And as you were talking about this scientist hat and the salesperson hat, you know, I was reflecting on myself as, you know, somebody who's primarily, um, you know, been a, um, in my career, been an entrepreneur who's like started things and raised the money for them and how much you are put into that box where you just have to, you just have to sell and you have to persuade everybody. And gosh, it's really, really hard. To, it's really hard to kind of um, code switch and then become this other person on the other side. Do Super you, hard. Do you, yeah, do you think there's a way, based on the things that you've seen, to predict in advance whether or not a team that you work with is going to be able to deal with those kinds of road bumps and those sorts of failures? Like, are you, have you, after doing it for so long, have you gotten to a place where you can kind of see uh, the early warning signs of people who might not be able to take the input they need? I wish I could. Um, I've been surprised by people that I thought were really arrogant and didn't take input when they got data. I've been surprised by how effective it is. Hmm. But I do, um, there are early warning signs. And what 
what I've evolved is certain questions that I ask when I'm considering working with someone. So we work all year long, uh, excuse me, with uh, teams, anywhere from two to eight or 10 people that are working on a product. And when I'm taking on a new client, what I've learned to do is try and scare them off. So what I'll tell them is, look, we're gonna get together, we're going to get data from your hot core customers about what they think of your product. And it might be really different than what you think. It might be really hard. It might challenge a lot of your assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I try and say that in a very strong way. How, what do you think? And then I say, so what do you think about that? And then I listen really carefully for the tone of voice in the person's voice. So if they say, that's exactly what I've been looking for. I know that's hard, but I want that and I can't do it myself. I just can't, I'm, I'm too inside of it. Uh, then I'm like, oh, okay. Other people, when I say that, say this is gonna be really challenging. They'll say things like, well, our funding depends on this being in VR. Uh -huh. Or, you know, we can't really change who we're targeting with the audience because like if it's a corporate thing, for instance, because we also work with large brands and corporations on enterprise stuff. But I like to tell them, this is gonna be hard, this is gonna challenge you, and it's gonna be emotionally really difficult. And I like to see what they say. That doesn't always work though. Uh, it works a lot of the time. There was a client who is now one of my big success stories, for instance. Um, if you want, if you go to Game Thinking TV, we can link that in the show notes. Okay, uh, great. Our YouTube channel, the, you'll see that our latest interview was a case study of this client. It's a smart AI chatbot named Replica. I almost didn't take them as a client. Uh, we had a couple of phone calls. They came in through a VC friend of mine who said they really need your help. We talked on the phone. They had really strong ideas. I wasn't sure. It was this issue, Gabe. It was, can, are they moldable clay? You know, it's like, right. can they be coached? Can they take this in? And they're brilliant people. English is a second language. They're from Russia, you know, utterly brilliant. So in our final call, I said, okay, look, you know, I got a lot going on. You do too. I'd love to work with you and help you, but this is going to rip you raw. It really is. There is no way. We literally can't keep going in the direction you're going. That's not going to happen, but it's going to be confusing. It's going to be upsetting. We're going to rip you raw, but we're going to find the truth. We're gonna find the truth of what is the, the core of value in this product. And I'm gonna push you really hard. And it's not gonna be easy. Do you, is that what you want? And they were, they were like, yes, yes, it's what we want. We've been talking about it, we've been struggling, yes. And now they're one of my big success stories. So I'm like so happy. That's because amazing. They, they, they really worked hard and it was all those things but they leaned into it and they realized, oh my God, this is a very different way to build a product and it's much more user-centered and iterative and we don't have to wonder if we're right. We can go gather the data to find out if we're right, which is the yeah. yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. I don't, I personally, I don't think that intelligence and this sort of moldability thing are necessarily connected because I, I have seen a lot of people who are you know, smart and moldable and smart and not moldable. You know, it's like the all four quadrants of the thing. Right. You, know, I, you you've been doing this for some time, and you know you 
um, of course, in the game industry, we know there's not um, there's not enough women represented in you know in many of the roles in that industry, and you know also in startups, there's a very like kind of uneven distribution of the startups that you know they work with. What's it been like for you as this you know expert, this product expert, this expert in game thinking, but also being a woman coming into these situations in which you're literally like saying things to a, a founder and I don't know who the founders were from Russia, but it just in my mind, like we're going to rip you raw with this, uh, you know, with this insight that we're going to get, um, you know, what's that been like for you? It's been really interesting. I've had a great experience in the games industry. Uh, I have not experienced a lot of sexism. I know a lot of people have. Sure. Uh, I personally, um, had fairly gender-free experiences, and I think I was lucky. Um, so when I, as a woman, when I come into these startups, in general, the way that I try to operate is gender-free, not meaning that I'm, I don't have a gender, but I, I'm pretty hardcore. You know, I'm a pretty hardcore person. I don't pretend I'm not. I mean, the rip you raw is a good example, right? I get, yeah. I, I get big time results with my clients and I push them hard and I know what I'm doing and all that stuff. So I think I present that's, those are all much more typically male kind of things, that confidence and, you know, the hardcoreness. And so I think the fact that I'm a woman and I'm actually, you know, nice and friendly and all that, and yet I'm super hardcore makes an interesting package for people because it doesn't trigger their like Silicon Valley bro thing, right? It, so I don't trigger that for people. I just, okay, they, they accept and understand that I'm an expert in gaming and I've come out of this, but I think there's a softness to being a woman that kind of maybe just the fact that I'm female takes a little of my hard edges off. But then when I um, actually work with clients, 90% of the time, I literally don't notice the gender. And what I mean by that is like, we're just doing the work. It doesn't come up. Um, the only thing that comes up is I'm always trying to feed everybody. Like when we have a meeting, I'm like, Should I bring some food. They're like, are you trying to make us fat? And I that's, mean, that's the Jewish mother thing. Yeah, you're a Jewish mom. That's what I was going to say. That's, that's all. You can, you can only be you. Um, right. But like well, there, there was this other one with the woman thing. Um, it was the very famous uh, serial entrepreneur who founded... Uh, uh, some very well-known companies. I don't want to say who it is, but okay. super famous person, really awesome person. Um, we worked together when a startup that he had been working on for five years failed and they never found product market fit. His previous startup found product market fit like that, right? And just took off. So we worked together on this new startup to help product market fit. It was an all-male team except for me. And it was in the sports area. So again, very male kind of area. Yeah. And things were going really well. I tried to scare them off, didn't succeed. So we started working together and things were going really well. But then we had a session where we were play testing our ideas remotely using Zoom, using this tool with uh, some game. Uh, it was for sport, with some sports fans in Chicago and New York and Seattle. And we were play testing our ideas and several of them didn't really like it, which wasn't surprising to me. 
And that's great. I mean, it was storyboards and we hadn't built anything yet. It's fantastic to find out that people aren't resonating in the way. But when that happened, the um, things got weird. Uh, the, the founder said, well, I don't think we're talking to the right people. And I said, yeah, we are. We're talking to the right people. We did these like two layers of filtering. We really are. Unless you want to change who you're targeting this at, but we're talking to the people that you told me you're targeting it at. And then he said, well, I think that maybe you don't understand sports and you're not asking the right questions. Mm. And this, and you know, and that was the female thing, right? Right. Although there are some females who love sports. Sure. But when, and I see this a lot actually with founders, when, when you're actually able to bring in the data from exactly the right customers about your product, when you have that data in front of you, um, it can be really hard. It, I mean, really hard. And that, like for me, I think of myself as walking through the fire with my clients. It's hard and I'm there and I'm not going to leave their side till we're through the fire and we figured it out. So when I got to that, part, that point with this client and they were sort of attacking me, I got deja vu because every time that I've had someone in my programs, masterclass or my accelerator or other programs, and they react that way after we get data about their product, 100% of the time, that data threatens their core beliefs about the value of their product. Right. And rather than pushing through that and saying, this is really hard, but I want to integrate it and iterate and build something people want. Rather than pushing through that, there are people whose egos can't take that. And no judgment. It's just, I observe it and I've seen it a lot. And what they always do hundred percent of the time when that happens is attack me, attack my process, attack my skill set, and say, ah, this isn't so good. You're not so good. Those are the wrong blah, blah, blah. And right. at this point, it still stings. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That hurts when that yeah. happens. But I know what it is. And I'm able to uh, separate it from myself and understand that it was too hard. It was just too hard to integrate that. Too much cognitive dissonance. And, you know, if I'm going to be the fall guy and they're going to trash me and what I do because that they can't do anything else emotionally, it's okay. They'll learn. Maybe in 10 years, they'll learn, they'll look back and go, oh yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah. those are really the yeah. only times I can think of when the gender thing has been an issue. Uh, I know a lot of women uh, struggle with that, uh, but the only thing I could say is that I think I have a lot of more traditionally male characteristics. And so once I, and I'm not young and sexy and pretty, I also don't dress provocatively, I never have. Um, that's another thing is that I know women that complain, complain, complain about treated, talk, having their looks talked about or treated in a certain way. And then they show up in a meeting with a low cut blouse. And I'm like, come on. Like, oh, I have every right to do. No, it's like, I, I really do feel there. First of all, there's a lot of gender issues in the world. No question. Sure. There's a lot you can't control. But here's the thing. There's a lot you can control. And all you can do is go to the places you can control and do your best. So as a woman, you can control um, stepping up to something you're not quite sure you can do, which is very male. Most women wait till they're completely ready, right? So yeah. if you step up to something and say, I'm 70% of the way, 80% of the way, I'm going to give it a shot. People will read that as more male. If you dress in a 
um, a way that's not provocative. It's just that simple. I don't have to belabor it. We all know what that means. If you dress like, you know, black turtleneck, whatever, in a certain way, people read that as, oh, she's here to work. She's not right. here to play. She's here to work. Right. If you um, are very uh, straightforward and measured in the way you communicate and don't uh, bring in a lot of female tropes, people will not react to you as much in that way. They will. And the way I think of it is just like, let's get everybody focused on the work. That's like my motto. I learned that from one of my first bosses way back when I was starting in the industry. She kept saying, we had a really contentious situation. Um, and she kept saying, focus on the work. Focus. Okay, that's great. I understand you're upset. Let's bring this back now Yeah, on the work. And so my MO with working has always been to focus on the work and be have sort of the fact that I, I'm a woman disappear. Disappear in the way that in everybody's minds so that we're just a team working together. One of the things that comes up a lot now, um, you know, people talk about this sort of mediocre white guy failing up example where, you know, they, they see, you know, they, they see this like, um, maybe, maybe he's the right example, maybe he's not better O'Rourke, this kind of like, you know, this, this sort of archetype of a white man who just doesn't seem to care about the mistakes he's making and bumbling, but he ends up like, you know, doing something that people who are of different genders, different ethnicities, different ages, different abilities, feel like they have to work extra hard just to get to kind of part of that, that area. And I think there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's, you know, a lot of things, but specifically on the topic of failure, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about there is that, is it possible that this kind of like archetypal, like let's call it Silicon Valley white male entrepreneur guy, that his different attitude towards failure, perhaps his feeling of confidence that no matter what happens, he'll still be okay or get a job or whatever, that that attitude towards failure actually makes it possible for that, uh, for them to take more risks. And Absolutely. I heard, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I sort of heard the little nibble of, you know, a, a little nub of that in the thing that you were saying about, you know, how you kind of navigate that. And so, so kind of putting this together a little bit with the game thinking piece of it, um, how, how does the topic of game thinking approach the question of failure? There's, Head on. <laughs> we, we deeply embrace it. We, um, Game thinking uh, has several core principles. It really uh, encompasses a lot of what's in design thinking and the best of gamification. But the way that we deal with failure is iteration. It's like failure is part of iteration. And iteration, you iterate your way to success. You don't just come up with an idea. And game thinking gives you the tools, the very specific step-by-step -step tools to iterate yourself to success. And failure is a huge part of it. So what I do when I'm actually working hands-on with clients is both guide them through the failures and really celebrate the failures. Because as I'm sure is a theme in your program here, failure is about learning. You learn through failing. You learn a lot more through failing than you right. do through succeeding. Like the story I told you about the entrepreneur who succeeded kind of by accident. I mean, he's an awesome guy. He worked hard. He's super smart but they sort of fell into it and it actually crippled him in some ways because mm -hmm. it's very hard as a person to not fall back on the things that brought you success because in, all of us are human and that's what we do. 
And so if what brought you success was building what was in your head, it's even, even if you fail that once or twice, it's really hard to back away from that. Cause in your brain, you're like, well, but maybe it's just this time it'll be right. Right. So we deal with it head on and we deal with the emotional side of it a lot. And what we do is we wring the learning out of it. The whole thing is, oh my God, we failed. There's so much to learn. Okay, let's sit down and let's get into it. And let's, what did we learn? So I have a great story about that from my own experience recently. So I've been getting more into doing lives as you are doing. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do a about three months ago, I wanted to try doing a Facebook live. And so I sent out some messages and people were like, oh, that's cool. I'll show up. I went there and the screen froze. I had technical difficulties and it was just an epic fail. It was so, I had like 35 people signed in, which for me was a lot. And they watched me epically fail. And it was so humiliating. But th then what happened was after I got over that and picked myself up out of the puddle of tears, right? Um, I posted about it and I posted on Facebook since that's where I was doing it. I said, oh my God, I just had the most epic fail. Let me tell you what happened. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next. I think this went wrong. I think that went wrong. Anybody have any suggestions for tools? And I got like 60 comments. It was more comments than I think I've ever gotten on any post ever. It was amazing. People were jumping in. They were saying, I tried this. I tried that. Oh, you know, you have to do this, et cetera. Other people were jumping in. They think, oh my God, thank you so much for posting about your experience. I learned so much from this thread. And there it is. Yeah. So in many ways, I've made failure part of my brand, which is hot, which is emotionally difficult. Mm -hmm. But that, that was an example of making failure part of my brand. I, may, I just was really public about it. And I said, this failed. I screwed up. I learned a bunch. I'm looking for some uh, new techniques so I don't fail again. What you yeah. got? Yeah, I think that's great. That's a big part of my advocacy work in this, in this sphere is all about that um, embracing that failure rather than shying away from it you know, viewing it as a positive thing in your life because it's this important like learning experience. And that's very hard. And it, you know, case in point, it's been very hard for me. Um, so I know we're running out of time and I just want to make sure before we go, of course, it's been such a great conversation as always. Maybe you can just tell people briefly, um, you know, how they can sign up for your masterclass, uh, where they can get more information about game thinking. Awesome. So, if you go to gamethinking.io, that's our website, and everything is there. Uh, so we mostly work with teams, uh, startup teams, a lot funded startup teams all over the world, large brands like Shiseido and Disney and Tesla. Uh, but once a year, we run a masterclass that's open to individuals and small teams. And that's happening right now. It starts next week. If you want to find out about it, you can just go to gamethinking.io. There's a big um, promo for the masterclass on the front page. If you want to actually sign up for it, go to gamethinking.io slash MC for masterclass. And we'll post those links. Okay, great. That, and the masterclass, as I said, it runs once a year. The next opportunity is 2020. It's open to individuals and small teams. And in this masterclass, we walk you step-by-step -step through these techniques, through the game thinking system, and help you find exactly the right p 
people to test your ideas on so that you can dramatically accelerate your product market fit and iterate your way to success. That's awesome. Amy Jo. Celebrating failure. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Celebrating I, failure. Celebrating failure it. along the way. Um, Amy Jo Kim, thank you so much. And, uh, and I hope to see you live soon. And of course, everyone, if this is your area of interest, you can't learn from a better person. Uh, those game, that game thinking masterclass is really gold. So make sure you sign up for it in time. Um, thank you for joining us for the Philosophy audio and video cast. I'm your host, Gabe Zickerman. You can follow me at at G-Z-I-C-H-E-R-M or uh, philosophy.com. And I'll be sure to include um, links to all of Amy Jo Kim's stuff so that you can follow her wherever you need to be. Thanks, Amy Jo. Thank you, everybody. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, leave a review, share with your friends, and come back next week for more real talk about failure. And remember, if you're not on the precipice of failure right now, you're not living to your full potential. This has been Philosophy with Gabe Zickerman. So I